everyone, and uh, uh, happy 2022, I guess. <laughs> uh, listen, I realize it's a little bit late for me to be doing a best of 2021 episode of this podcast. I, fine, you know, time got away from me, lots of things were going on, the world is what it is, it cut me some slack. But I still wanted to do a look back on 2021, you know, the first year I did this podcast in 2020, I did a best of at the end of the year. I thought it was fun, and I think it's a useful episode for people who are new to the podcast to kind of get a feel for the kinds of guests and topics that we cover here. And so I thought, listen, even though I'm a couple weeks late, I could still do it, right? It's my show. I'll do I'll do it the way I want to do it. <laughs> um, so this is the best of 2021 opinion science. And, you know, as I said last year, I really hate the idea of doing a best of because I feel like it's forcing me to actually say that what you hear in this episode is the best of the best. And, it, you know, you should only listen to what was in here. And that I just don't believe it because everything <laughs> this in 2021, I, I feel very attached to. I, I feel like was very good. So many guests who you're not going to hear in this best of collection truly were incredible um, and deserve your attention. So this really is meant to give you a flavor of the kinds of things that happened on this show in 2021, not like the end-all be-all, these are truly my favorites and the rest are not worthy of your attention. But nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I thought it was fun to go back and collect up some of my favorite moments, some interesting moments, some uh, popular moments from 2021, and, and compile them together here. Uh, and if you're a regular listener, this is a fun reminder of, of where things were uh, in the past year on this podcast. And if you're brand new to the show, this, again, gives you some sense of what the show is all about. So uh, if you are new to the show, here is the gist of it. Um, my name is Andy Luttrell. I'm a uh, an assistant professor of psychological science. The research that I do is on the psychology of opinion and persuasion. What kinds of opinions are strong? What kinds of opinions are weak? Where do they come from? How do they change? And that topic is huge and so deeply relevant to the lives that we live and the way that our world works. And so I started this podcast to shine a light on the cool research that psychologists and political scientists and communication scholars and sociologists are doing, and also to get a chance to talk to communicators on the ground who are doing this kind of work, who are persuading people who need to understand opinion and where it comes from and how it works. And so this is a chance for me to do that. 2021 gave me the opportunity to meet lots of people, old friends, new friends, uh, people in my field, people outside of my field, and we'll take a look at, at what um, at what we discovered. So the, the way that I'm going to organize things for this special best of episode is I've pulled five minute or so clips from seven episodes from the past year that I think give a good overview of the kinds of topics that will come up, the kinds of people that I talk to, the kinds of formats that the show can take, and also kind of covers, I, I, you know, what is mostly like the span of this year or 20 last year, <laughs> 2021, both early episodes and, and later ones. So I don't know, I, I guess we should just get right to it. I feel like I talked a lot uh, in the last best of, and unlike the normal introductions that I do for this podcast that are pretty well thought out ahead of time. Uh, this one, I'm just freewheeling it, <laughs> which I, well, you can probably tell. But I just kind of want to explore with you and reflect with you and um, kind of have that rough cut um, that, that maybe doesn't always come through in the show. So we're going to start off with a couple interviews that I did with people who study moral psychology. So if we think about the opinions that we have and the, the takes that we have, the positions we take on various issues, morality is really at the center of so many of them. And, and it's the kind of stuff that I personally study. So the psychology of the attitudes and opinions we have that come from our moral beliefs really gets me jazzed. And I talked to two people this year who do this kind of work and do this kind of work really well. The first person we'll hear from is Jesse Graham. And he has been really involved in the development of moral foundations theory, which has really taken off. You, you may have heard of this theory before if, if you haven't heard the episode. Jonathan Haidt is the other person who's been really well tied to this idea. I, I had met Jesse at a conference a couple years ago, and his work has always kind of been at the forefront of how people think about moral values, and especially how those values map onto different political ideologies. And I thought, 
let's talk to him. Let, let's get his take on where this idea came from, that moral foundations are what they are, and that they map on to political ideologies, and go from there. So we'll, we'll hear now a quick clip from my conversation with Jesse Graham about politics and moral values. You know, when we were starting to look at this, the, the foundations that, that we're, we're looking at and, and are, are still looking at, um, we started with with care versus harm. It's just this very fundamental, you know, we, we tend to morally care about uh, somebody being hurt and we care about who's doing the hurting. And, and I think the, the kind of virtues associated with this would be things like compassion and nurturance and, and peace. And, you know, we, we tend to really moralize things like that. And then fairness versus cheating. And fairness, I think, is very kind of variegated construct. But in general, um, you know, there's there's not much debate about fairness and justice being really important to morality. And so those first two foundations we we're looking at seem like were very well covered in the literature when when we were starting out, you know, again, around 2004. And I would, I would see like the patron saints of, of them being Carol Gilligan for care and Lawrence Kohlberg for, for fairness. And, you, you know, there's all, all those debates between Gilligan and Kohlberg. I think they, the, the field basically settled on, okay, these are both morally important. These are both important aspects of morality. Um, but we were interested more in group level concerns that, that we thought weren't being covered as much uh, in, in scientific approaches to morality. And so um, the first one of those we, we looked at was loyalty versus betrayal. Um, and so the idea that it's morally important to be loyal to your group, whether that group be the family, the nation, sports team, something like that. Uh, and then also really important for group living is um, authority versus um, subversion. And so the, this is part of the idea of showing proper respect for um, both authorities and traditions. Um, and so there's a lot of moralization of the traditions of, of a particular group um, that we saw as, as not necessarily just the same as, as loyalty, although it's, I think it's closely tied to it. And if you're, if you're going against that, if you're bucking tradition, then there's something morally wrong with you. And, and these, I think, are, are sort of, to, to a, a liberal audience, are, are less obviously part of morality, um, you know, I, I certainly have a lot of convictions that it's important to question traditions. It's important to question authority, right? Um, and then the last one we looked at was um, purity uh, versus degradation. And so this is where a lot of kind of sexual moralization goes on. The idea of, you know, treating your body as a temple and not a playground, you know, resisting our lower base desires for this kind of higher, more divine nature. And so this is very tied up, not just in physical purity, like disgust, but also with uh, spiritual purity. And so those, those are the ones that we were looking at and we thought, you know, boy, there's a lot of, um, there seems to be a lot of attention paid on the right to things like loyalty, authority and purity, but not so much on the left. On, on the left, you know, what, what you're really seeing is, is concerns about individuals treating each other fairly um, and, and not hurting anybody else. And when you, when you say that you just mean sort of out in the world, just sort of intuiting these things, or you're saying in your data you saw yeah, no, ju just to, to start with, just mm -hmm. sort of our our kind of sense of, you know, this all these debates between liberals and conservatives seem to be, you know, um, and, and maybe there is something that is really important to conservatives that that liberals aren't aren't talking about or are explicitly rejecting, right? So if you're saying question authority, but some people might totally morally agree and, and some people might be morally offended by that. And so we, so we thought, you know, maybe it's just these like basic kind of core values that there are differences in or that, you know, this kind of political subcultures of liberals and conservatives are building on these foundations in, in different ways. And that might be one reason why people seem to be talking past each other. Because one of the things that we really noticed was, it, you know, I'm very liberal. And if I have conservative relatives, um, you know, we could argue about politics for hours and we have, and there seems to be no convincing each other, right? There seems mm -hmm. to be no, and, and you would kind of think, you know, in most sort of higher level rational arguments, that eventually there should be some coming together, some sort of consensus uh, that is never met. And so we thought, boy, politics just seems like this sort of magical, you know, invisible wall is coming up between people. And we thought, you know, maybe this moral foundations approach would be one way of trying to just describe that. And we weren't even thinking about trying to fix it necessarily, but we were thinking, you know, maybe this, is, maybe this would be one way to kind of describe what the problem is. And then I think there, there was a sort of higher, you know, long-term goal of, well, maybe this would be one way that, you know, liberals and conservatives could understand each other better or something mm -hmm. um, in the future. And that I think is a really difficult thing to actually do, but 
um, you know, there has been some work on things like moral framing and, and, and you know, moving people around, um, at, at least in the short term on different topics. The other person I talked to last year about morality was Anna Gantman, who's an assistant professor of psychology at Brooklyn College. Anna has this cool work on how moral information really pops out at us when we are sort of going through our lives and there's a steady stream of information cascading across our eyeballs. Moral stuff really grabs our attention. So I talked to her about that. But what I didn't see coming is this cool new research that she's been up to that she just happened to mention (laughs) in the course of our conversation. So I I'm going to play a clip of her talking about this research on what she calls phantom rules and what it means for how people use morality and bureaucracy as a way to enact their own preferences. I think a lot about how to understand the difference between the moral domain and some other domain or what it means for something to be moralized. And that is a big driving force in what I'm interested in. And so we are... Well, really broadly, I read um, two books by David Graeber, The Utopia of Rules and Bullshit Jobs, and I thought they were both just incredible and very inspiring. And so right now in the lab, we're really interested in this intersection of morality and bureaucracy. Hmm. So our everyday lives are just full of bureaucratic systems, right? So a bureaucracy is a a hierarchical organization where people's jobs are compartmentalized and they're they're meant to be meritocratic. That is you um, a clear path for moving up the ladder. So of course, colloquially, people hate bureaucracy, right? Like nobody is like, oh, yay, the bureaucracy. <laughs> that sounds right um, to me. <laughs> yeah, people don't like them, right? Um, but their their history is interesting because what they they come out of these Enlightenment ideals that we want to improve fairness and equality and not give people special favors. But um, Max Weber, a sociologist sort of famous for writing about this, he coined the term the iron cage. And so what bureaucracy asks of you is that for equality and fairness, you have to give up some of your kind of unique humanness. It doesn't matter if, you know, you're the one in a rush, you have to wait in line at the DMV. And so that just is, I think, so interesting to think about how it intersects with our moral values, because that's not really how we think about morality at all. And so um, a lot of the the really new stuff in the lab is thinking about how our moral values interact with rules, how it affects our perception of policies, um, and also... Getting so is, a- the, is the idea with the bureaucracy thing kind of like it's hard for people to believe you can do the right thing when there is a bunch of bureaucracy? Is that sort of what you're getting at? Uh, I wouldn't put as fine a point uh, as fine a point on it as that. I would just say that our bureaucratic structures and our moral systems are at a mismatch. Mm-hmm. So, so here, let me give you one example. So, one project that we have going on in the lab right now, we're calling Phantom Rules, and the idea this came from uh, my graduate student Jordan Wiley, and she's a big tennis fan, and she was watching the U.S. Open in 2018, and I don't know if you remember this, but Serena Williams got hit with this coaching violation. And it cost her like $17,000 and the title and all this stuff. And uh, what's interesting about it is that people get coached all the time. So it's a rule that everybody breaks and people do not care about. But somehow, because we think Serena Williams, like in addition to being one of the greatest athletes of all time, is often in the news for what she's wearing or what she, what she said. And so there's a lot of... Um, pushback about the way that she violates norms in tennis. And so we think that one thing that phantom rules do is when you violate a norm, which is a representation of how most people do or should behave, um, but they're informal. Like So thinking about social norms specifically, not as codified rules, right, but as um, implicit rules that everybody knows, those are harder to punish. But phantom rules are codified rules. And so if you want to punish somebody, what you can do is pull a phantom rule out of the air. That's why we call them phantom rules. They're kind of invisible unless you have um, unfinished business. So these are Casper the Friendly Ghost uh, (laughs) rules of phantoms. If you have unfinished business, then all of a sudden the rule appears to you as a way to enact the punishment. Hmm. And so we have been identifying phantom rules. These are things like jaywalking. So in the U.S. legal system, for example, but you can imagine any codified set of rules could have some like this. Uh, Jaywalking, loitering, downloading music, like pirating music, uh, smoking marijuana in most states. Um, These things that everybody kind of has the sense that everyone does. If you just ask people, 
They can recognize that these things are frequently broken, these rules. They are technically illegal, and also they're relatively morally inconsequential. Right? So this is a place where we can see the, the bureaucracy and the, and the morality bumping up against each other. You can't do it, but nobody cares. right? <laughs> um, and so what we find is that people think that phantom rules are more legitimate, more punishable, more blameworthy to violate if that person has also violated a social norm. So you learn about a person, either they're just hanging out or they violated a norm, like they were talking loudly in a movie or they were trying to kind of provoke a stranger, doing something rude. And then you also find out that they jaywalked. People think that jaywalking is worse. So these rules increase in our estimation of how legitimate they are and how legitimate it is to punish someone for breaking them in, in a motivated way, in a way where we want to then use the rule to punish them. And this effect goes away if you learn that that person was punished for this, the norm violation. So if, I, if you learn, hey, that guy just tried to provoke a stranger into a fight, but somebody told them off for it, then you don't get the phantom rule effect. You don't find, find that they, it was bad that they jaywalked after that. So we really think it's a again a motivational effect. It sort of it, it sounds just worldy, where it's like I just need to turn to something legitimate seeming to make a right out of a wrong, right? Like someone did something bad, and I, I understand that I I can't turn to like illegitimate things. Is that sort of it? Like, there's like enough yep. rationality where people are like, well, okay, I can't just like do anything to punish this person. But if it's already on the books, I wonder if some of it's like a responsibility thing too. People be like, I didn't make the rules. They already right. exist. Uh, so what this do we do? It's going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so it's, it could both be a sense of, you know, what ways are appropriate for me to enact punishment. And also they're just less painful, right? It's much more intense to go tell somebody not to do what they've done than it is to be like, oh, but um, they're jaywalking. Could somebody, um, could somebody handle that? Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's also just less, um, it's less difficult. Hmm. So that's one exciting avenue that we're interested in about how our morality kind of scratches up against some of the, the rules that we have in place, right? A, a kind of fundamental tenet of bureaucracy is that the rules are meant to apply equally to everybody. But phantom rules show us that we're not, even when we have rules that are meant to work like that, we don't use them that way. Um, we find another way to use these rules. Um, so that's one kind of intersection, viewing that, mm -hmm. that actor through a moral lens. Mm -hmm. Okay, switching gears a little bit. Um, 2021 was also the year that I got to finally meet Robert Cialdini, who, who is someone that I had wanted to meet for a long time. His book, Influence, came out many years ago, long before it was popular for psychologists to write books for the public. And in this book, he really shines a light on social psychology research on influence and persuasion in a way that really hadn't been done before and brought this stuff to a wide audience. Honestly, if you look up the psychology of influence online, you are bound to come across his work in this area. And so as a person who was interested in psychology in college, who started studying the psychology of persuasion in grad school and who teaches and does this research now, this is a guy whose whose name I had known for many, many years, and to finally get a chance to meet him was amazing. The newest edition of his book was coming out, and so that was sort of the, the way in that I had to talk to him. Um, but the clip that I'm about to play, it really is not about his work on influence at all. I used this opportunity to sneak in this question I'd always had about some research that he had done back in the 1970s that has really proven really influential for the way that we think about our group identities, which is the next theme of clips that I'm going to play in this best of episode. So, um... What I'm going to start this clip in is me sort of giving some background into uh, a study that he had done uh, many years ago, and then launching into me asking him uh, about the backstory to this study. So here is me and Robert Cialdini. When we met, I asked Cialdini a question that was mostly for my own curiosity. I didn't think it was relevant to the topics that we'd be covering. But eventually, I realized that it was actually the perfect place to start our conversation. I just didn't cue things up very well, and you might not know what the heck we're talking about. So, a little bit of context. I asked him about his research on what he calls 
basking in reflected glory. The idea is basically that people will associate themselves with a group more strongly when that group is successful. It's like we experience our group's successes as though they're our own. The classic finding is from an article that he published in 1976. He and a team of researchers closely monitored the clothes college students wore at seven universities across the country, Arizona State, Notre Dame, Michigan, etc. But they were specifically looking at whether students were wearing university apparel, things like jackets and t-shirts with the school's name on it. And they only really cared about what students were wearing on Mondays. Why Mondays? Well, on the weekends, there are football games. And they wanted to see what happens when a school's football team had just won the game that weekend. And what happens when their team lost the game? He and his team found that across these schools, more students wore university apparel the Monday after a win than the Monday after a loss. They were celebrating their team's success by associating more proudly with the group. Anyhow, Basking in Reflected Glory has gone on to generate all sorts of cool research. You can check out a YouTube video I made this year for more on that. But if you've listened to this podcast before, you might know that I went to grad school at Ohio State. Talk about an in-group that people won't shut up about. And I had heard this rumor that Cialdini was inspired to test Basking in Reflected Glory because of an observation he had while he was a visiting professor in the social psychology department at Ohio State in the early 70s. It made sense to me. The whole city is awash in scarlet OSU gear on game days. But I still wanted to know if that rumor was true. So I asked him. And that's how we got into things. I had one other question for you, actually, just before. This is just a curiosity, mostly for my sake. Um, the basking and reflected glory work that you've done. I had heard a rumor that it started with an observation when you were visiting professor at Ohio yeah. State. Is yeah. that right? Was Ohio State's campus the genesis of that work? Yes, it, it was. Uh, you know, uh, the social psychology program was in the stadium, and mm -hmm. I had tickets to to leave. For, you know, for, to to be in uh, my seat, but I would go into the office in the morning and work <laughs> and then go into the stadium, the bowl of the stadium and uh, saw this immense uh, proliferation of joy and cheers and ecstasy associated with the team just running on the field, <laughs> just running on the field. They didn't do anything. They just appeared and people went berserk. And I thought to myself, Cialdini, you're studying the wrong thing. <laughs> Look at the power here. Yeah. Yeah, that those days sound so cool when the department was in the stadium. I mean, th those days were long gone by the time I got there. But hearing stories about how, like, the seed of implicit social cognition started <laughs> in the, you know, basement of the football stadium and, and all of these other amazing things that have come out of that program all toiled away underneath the, the football stadium. It was it was a great place, actually. You know, uh, we were isolated. There weren't any other academic units there. So we sort of had the run of that section uh, of the stadium. And, uh, yeah, it was possible to go through some dark corridors, through some little used doors, and into the stadium. Just <laughs> And that was the thing that struck me. I had been in the office uh, working on a, a data set that wasn't quite significant. And I'm trying to think, well, how... You know, do I strengthen the manipulation? Do I add more subjects? All those little tricks that you do. To, and uh, then I came out into the and, and then there's this volcano of um, enthusiasm and energy and approbation associated with the team. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I doing down there trying to get an, <laughs> a standard deviation from three quarters of a point to one point when the power is around me here? Yeah. So, you know, that, that actually maybe is a better place to start than I anticipated, because that almost is sort of sparked a shift in sort of for a long time, the work that you did, right, in, in terms of 
looking to the world to find the powerful stuff that's going on around you rather than going, can I move one inch beyond this paper that came out one year ago? And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, your full cycle approach to social psychology, uh, which I think is an approach that is great and has just for for reasons maybe you can elucidate hasn't quite caught on in the way that one would hope that it has. Well, the the idea comes from the fact that uh, as researchers, we were taught to treat the data that came out of laboratory investigations as the gold standard, when in fact, it seemed to me that there are uh, examples and lessons to be learned from the uh, exchanges that people engage in every day outside of the laboratory in much more naturally occurring circumstances that serve as checks and moderators on how much we should believe what ha- what we found in the laboratory, which is actually a hothouse, isn't it? We eliminate all other variables, all other influences on the growth of our idea and the the, the thriving, uh, uh, flourishing of it that might be extant in naturally occurring situations that may make that effect that we found there essentially negligible because these other things are just overpowering it. We just seal them off and away from uh, the investigation that we do in the lab. And it seemed to me that it was a, so we, we not only should begin our investigations with observations of how the world works outside of the laboratory and our own exchanges with people, but we should also then look back to the real world to see if the findings we've we've obtained in the laboratory align with what we see outside um so for example uh, you know we we did uh, multiple experiments on the topic of basking in reflected glory that we saw in the football stadium of uh, the ohio state university team outside of uh, the the laboratory. And as a result, we're able to uh, think about the result as something that was more likely to survive replication attempts than what, because they, those studies were done where all of these other variables were acting and we still got the effect. And so recently there has been a replication of the basking in reflected gory study by some people in uh, sports psychology at Ohio State University, and they replicated our effects again almost 50 years later. Keeping this theme of group identity going, I think the first person that I talked to for the podcast in 2021 was Jay Van Bavel. Um, I-, I was working on a-, a YouTube video that I wanted to make to teach about this concept called social identity theory, and Jay is someone who's done a bunch of work uh, recently in this uh, theoretical framework, and I thought he'd be a really good resource to talk to for this video, but I thought, well, well why not <laughs> just record the conversation that we have in total and release it as a podcast episode. And, and I'm so glad that, that I did that because it, it's become one of the most downloaded episodes of this podcast so far. In September, Jay and his colleague Dominic Packer released a book called The Power of Us, which uh, does a really nice job of talking about social identity and what it means for you know how we live our own lives and think about issues that are persistent in our social world. Um, but I wanted to talk to Jay. This um, clip you're going to hear is me talking to Jay about a concept called the minimal group paradigm, which is you know, this is going to sound a little inside baseball, but I think it's super interesting and important, which is a tool that psychologists have been using for decades to understand the influence of group identity and to understand how little it takes for those identities to become important and to bias our decision-making about ourselves and other people. So we're going to jump in to Jay talking about this minimal group paradigm as a method for understanding the impact of our social identities? Yeah. So it it starts for me if you take a real world example. So let's say you take something like um, racial bias, 
and you see someone's, you know, engaging in racial preferences in like, let's say they're hiring decisions. So there's lots of potential reasons that might be. One is that they are, have been exposed to racial stereotypes their entire life. Um, the other is that they're trying to like reinforce existing hierarchies in society because they want to preserve the status quo or they have political allegiances or ideologies that motivate them to uh, engage in discrimination. Um, another element of discrimination is some part of it is often due to just their identity. Do they identify as a certain group and disidentify with another group? And so when you're studying something like racial bias, which I was interested in when I started uh, grad school and still am, you'd see all of these papers on uh, racial uh, discrimination, racism, racial bias, implicit racial bias, and you, it'd be often hard to tell what was driving this behavior. And so what the minimal groups uh, research allows us to do, and, and this was invented by Tajfel and his colleagues back in the early 70s, what, you, what they did and what I've tried to do a lot of is basically you can just flip a coin and, and turn any group of people into two subgroups. And what he found, and I think it was a remarkable surprise to him at the time, it still seems surprising to me, is once you flip a coin and create two groups in a classroom or at a, you know, a summer camp for kids or at a workforce, what it does is it creates a sense of us and them. And people automatically start to identify with their in-group. And, and what Tashfell found was that they will discriminate in favor of their in-group. They'll give more money to the in-group, uh, especially in ways that optimize the gains of the in-group relative to the out-group. So they really wanna maximize the difference between the in-group and the out-group and, and how they give money and resources. Uh, anybody who's ever played like pickup sports, I remember like, you know, if you go to like the local gym and play a game of pickup basketball and you just randomly choose two teams, mm -hmm you immediately start like cooperating with your in-group trying to figure out who they are. And I've had this experience when I was a kid growing up. Like I had this one, one of my best friends, whenever we'd play pickup sports, if I was on the same team as him, we would just get along famously. We were on the other teams were both pretty competitive and we would be at each other's throats <laughs> within like half an hour. And so it was that simple, that just that simple arbitrary act of being part of a group shifts, you know, this, it's almost like a, a, a switch is, is flipped in our brain and it, changes how we think of ourselves and, and members of our own group and the other group um, into kind of an us versus them mindset, especially if you're competing over a resource. And uh, that element can be studied in, in a very careful way in the lab. It can be carefully controlled. There's often no stereotypes involved. Um, the groups are different on like history or oppression. And you can see how much of, of the types of discrimination we observe in the world and in other labs is just driven by that, that root of bias, which is just this sense of us and them. And so I've done many studies and we found a lot of things that we see that look like they might be driven by stereotypes or other types of, you know, historical biases or, or ideology or the goals of oppression. A lot of it is really just driven by uh, this foundational element of identity, or you can at least reproduce the same effects by creating two arbitrary teams. Um, and so it's useful for scientifically to understand what's going on. Also, suggests ways to intervene, which is, can you build a common sense of identity? Um, you know, you can imagine like a science fiction movie, you know, like Independence Day where the aliens come and invade Earth. Would that be enough to get us all on the same page for a moment to rally together to fight off the aliens? And not only on the same page in, in say America, but to cooperate with countries like Russia or China who are normally, uh, you know, adversaries, you'd be cheering for them too, to help fend off the alien invasion. And so, the reason for that presumably is identity um, because you unlikely it's unlikely you've seen a lot of media coverage of, of aliens and their <laughs> characteristics and so forth. Um, it's not to say that things like stereotypes don't matter. They matter enormously in all kinds of domain. You know, his histories of oppression matter a great deal, you know, and many of and those things often in many contexts matter more than identity. So what happens in the real world, unfortunately, is certain groups are victim to like three or four or five of these problems that you know you have white racial identity. So if you take white supremacy and white racial identity, you have history of oppression, you have systemic inequality, um, you have political ideology, all layer on one another in, in a way that can make the discrimination faced by certain groups incredibly, incredibly hostile and oppressive. And so what we try to do as scientists, of course, is figure out what's driving what, in which context and by, by whom. I had heard a story that when Toshville started the minimal group stuff, 
it began almost like you were saying it was a surprise. It began as like, let's understand all this, this fighting between groups. And we'll start where it obviously wouldn't happen, which is we strip everything away and just make groups. And then we'll just establish a baseline and go from there. And then even at that point, there, there was this conflict. Is that right? Is that is that kind of the impetus for that program of work? That's my understanding of it. Yeah. In, in many ways, the minimal groups are like one of the most interesting control conditions in the history of social science. <laughs> um, you know, we, as you know, as scientists, we're always trying to strip everything away, get rid of the stereotypes, the conflict, the resources, um, the history of uh, uh, between two groups. And you strip out all those things that you think are causing the conflict and you realize, wow, you can get discrimination with none of those things. That's remarkably surprising. And I think what he was hoping to do, my understanding is that he was going to get rid of all those things and slowly add them in one at a time to see what really drives group conflict and was surprised to find you actually don't need any of those other things to get like very serious discrimination. All right. And finally, in this theme of thinking about group identity is the question of what we do about prejudice, right? Because these identities that we have, these social identities uh, that define us, can also be the reason why we discriminate against some groups, why we lift our own groups up at the expense of other groups. It really raises an important social question of what do we do to address the realities of prejudice? And and can we do anything to reduce that prejudice? So uh, in 2021, I took on <laughs> a reasonably ambitious podcast project, which is to dive deep into a concept that psychologists call the contact hypothesis. And the basic premise is that by giving people the opportunity to have meaningful contact with other people who have different social identities as themselves, that could be a way to reduce prejudice. If we can just bring groups together, we might see those intergroup tensions start to ease. This episode covers a lot of ground, including the origins of the contact hypothesis in the early uh, 20th century, up through uh, meta-analyses of hundreds of studies of the contact literature, um, experiments that have been conducted in India about the prejudices between caste groups. But what we're going to hear uh, in this episode, this this clip that I'm going to play, is a recent study from a couple of years ago by political scientist Salma Musa, who is currently a political science professor at Yale. And she conducted this really important experiment in Iraq to try to understand whether it's possible for the contact hypothesis to create meaningful change, even in a context that would have made intergroup tensions especially difficult. So we'll jump in. I'm going to play kind of this whole section of this episode that I produced on the, the contact hypothesis where, where I give an overview of this study that Selma did, intercut with my interview with her. This is one of the kinds of episodes that I'll sometimes produce where it's not just an interview with a person, but it's a bigger story that uses lots of conversations that I've had with people to, to give some sense of a key idea in the psychology of opinion and influence. So let's jump right in to this section of my episode on the contact hypothesis featuring political scientist Salma Musa. As a quick reminder, in 2014, ISIS took over huge swaths of land in Syria and northern Iraq under a banner of ethnic cleansing of religious minorities, and Christian people, among others, were forcibly displaced, driven out of their homes for years. Here's political scientist Salma Musa again. That kind of experience is obviously really traumatizing when you're a few miles away from your home, but you know that there's an ISIS uh commander or fighter who's living in your house, in your bed, who's stolen all of your valuables. Uh, and you just hear word from your neighbors or people around of what's left of your house. You don't really know what's going on. You come back three years later, you see everything valuable is gone. The deeds to your house are gone. It's hard for you to prove ownership. Your AC is not even in, in the wall anymore. They've taken absolutely everything they could take. Um, and this is obviously, this is a, a a, a kind of experience that defines a community. This becomes your identity, like your identity becomes centered around this victimhood um, and this kind of experience of going through this kind of ethnic cleansing. And so we have a bunch of research about potential strategies to reduce prejudice and to improve intergroup relations. But for me, the real question is, do these strategies work where it really, really counts? Like when the rubber hits the road, 
and people can barely look each other in the eye? Like, can these kinds of interventions to humanize the other, can that actually get us out of this and move towards some kind of social reconstruction? The answer, maybe, was contact. An NGO in Iraq had reached out to Selma about surveying displaced Christians in IDP camps. IDP is internally displaced people. As they were doing these surveys, she started to wonder if there was anything more they could do. Like, actually do something in the community to see if it would help ease tensions between Christians and Muslims. She had read about the contact hypothesis and wanted to see if maybe that would work. The question was, what's the right backdrop for studying contact in these environments? We ran some focus groups in the camps, and the number one suggestion that came out of that was soccer leagues. That was mm. the thing people wanted to do. Um, and actually, I had I had played around before with the idea of like drama and liter literature courses and art courses, and no one signed up. <laughs> These are people in IDP camps with nothing to do. No one signed signed up, and so that's when we kind of went back to the drawing board, and soccer became the obvious answer. Fortunately, it fulfills basically all of the criteria for contact, uh, according to the classic theory. So once we knew that soccer was the way to go, we set up a series of new soccer leagues. So in total, we actually ran four leagues. And the idea was that we would recruit pre-existing Christian teams. So the teams in this area generally are pretty ethnically homogenous. So we just sent an invite out to all the teams in the area and just said, we're going to start up these new set of leagues and they're going to be great. Uh, there's going to be professional referees and new fields and bleachers and people are going to watch and new uniforms. Like it's going to be very professionalized. Um, but there's like one big caveat, which is that to sign up, you agree that your team will have some players added. And that's the key. This wasn't just a fun way to bring some lively soccer games to these communities, although I mean, that happened too. It was an experiment in contact. All of the teams in these new soccer leagues were told that part of the goal was building community. So each team would be assigned three additional players. By random chance, these additional players would either be three more Christians, or they would be three Muslim players from nearby leagues. Now, you might be thinking, why is it that we want to get Christians to love a group that ran them out of their homes? Let's be super clear. It's the extremist group ISIS that forced Christians to flee, not Muslims in general. In fact, the Muslim players in Salma's soccer leagues, they had been displaced by ISIS too. But the whole mess did shake Christians' feelings about Muslims in general. And these were the rifts she was hoping to mend. I don't bring together like perpetrators and victims. So that's something I'm ethically not really interested in. And when she was getting permission from local priests to run the soccer leagues, they had the same reservations. They were very skeptical and I completely understood their skepticism. And it was mainly, why should we teach Christians to trust Muslims again after what happened to us? Which I completely understand, obviously. And so that made it even more clear to me that we had to target the intervention only to displace people. So we, we don't get any of this like victim perpetrator thing going on. So as you might expect, there were some growing pains. It took a change in norms for these mixed leagues to feel okay. We had some players who we interviewed three or four months after the leagues ended who said before these leagues happened, you would never see a Christian team with a Muslim player. It just didn't happen. And we did get some some resistance. One of the teams was affiliated with kind of a, I wouldn't go so far to say separatist, but definitely like a, a, a movement that's for uh, the independence of Syriac Christians uh, in the area. And they were, they're quite staunch and they have a very strong sense of communal identity. Um, and they were really hesitant. And that team actually happened to get randomized into the treatment group. And we obviously were not going to force anyone. We just said, okay, this is the setup. Like this is like the kind of you agree to participate under these terms and we're not forcing you. So it's up to you. Just let us know what you decide. And a few weeks later, they came back and said, okay, we'll, we'll do it because they saw everyone else was doing it. And it wasn't just this one team that was hesitant at first. At the beginning of the, of the program, 
we saw a lot of reluctance to really welcome the Muslim players. Um, the Christian players were not speaking Arabic, even though they're fluent in Arabic, because they kind of did not want the Muslim players to understand what was going on. Even on the benches, they weren't sitting next to each other. Um, they start. They were referring to these fields as our fields. Why are you inviting the Muslims to the league? Even they're going to ruin the league. They're going to ruin our fields. So did the players change their tune? Did spending a couple months getting to know a few Muslim guys do anything to these Christians' views? It seemed like it. By the end of the, the program, one of the research staff was kind of joking with one of the players because he was like, oh, yeah, you're going to invite them to the event. That's great. And she's like, what? I thought you I thought Muslims suck. And, you know, they're like, they're the worst and we shouldn't. They're ruining the league. And then the player was like, what are you saying? Don't talk like that. Like, don't bring that sectarian talk. We don't talk like that here. So it sure sounds like the tides might have been shifting, but this is just one anecdote. If we look across the league and consider the question scientifically, how do we know if this grand experiment actually made a difference? We can look at three key markers of success. First, at the end of the season, players voted for a Best Newcomer Award based on sportsmanship. They couldn't vote for a player on their own team, but they had to vote for a player who joined the league as one of the additional players. Only 46% of the people on a Christian-only team voted for a Muslim player for this award. But the players who just by random chance had Muslim players play on their own team? 72% of them voted for a Muslim player for this award. Second, when the league concluded, everyone was asked if they would volunteer to join a mixed team next season. Players who had been randomly assigned Muslim teammates were significantly more likely to agree to play with Muslim players again next season, compared to players on all Christian teams. And finally, Salma followed up with the players six months after the league ended to see who they were still training with. Only 15% of the players on all Christian teams were training with Muslims. But of the Christian players on mixed teams, 64% of them were still training with Muslim buddies. And there were other signs that contact was working in ways that her surveys couldn't quite pick up on. For example, one of the soccer leagues was in a place that was a little harder for the Muslim players to get to. A neighborhood called Ankawa, which is a Christian neighborhood in the city of Erbil. So the Muslims who we had brought in were coming from other parts of town. And so in that instance, that's where you saw the Christian players on these mixed teams start to actually pool their money to cover the taxi fare of the Muslim teammates, which was um, which was quite touching, actually. Like the average income in these places is not very high. And they went out of their way to make sure that those guys could come to practice and come to the games, which was really nice to see. And even after the league had wrapped up, the friendships they'd formed held on. Like we see the guys on mixed teams socializing months after the intervention there the christians are like haggling with the security guards at a like a bar to let their muslim teammates come in uh to this christian only bar so they can watch like the champions league final or um and so we did see some qualitative evidence of that as well okay but okay here's the thing <laughs> even though playing on a mixed team actually succeeded in making christians more tolerant of the muslim players that they met in the soccer league it did not really, detectably anyway, change your behaviors or your attitudes toward Muslims in general. So this critical assumption of the contact hypothesis that how you feel toward the people you meet is going to extend to the entire outgroup, I didn't find evidence of that. She had been looking for signs that her soccer players were starting to open up to Muslims in general, people they had never actually met before. For example, she was able to track whether they made a trip to Mosul, which was still a mostly Muslim city, and she organized a social event that was open to players, their families, and their friends, which meant that Christian attendees would socialize not just with the Muslims they knew, but Muslim strangers as well. Across these so-called off-the-field behaviors, the players on mixed teams were not reliably more likely to do these things. So it's true that one of the big hopes for contact is that the benefits generalize, meaning they go beyond the specific people you're interacting with and reshape your views of the whole group itself. And there's been some evidence that this does actually happen, but not always. 
Like, go back to that study during World War II, where white soldiers came to like the black soldiers they were fighting with. Even though this was encouraging news, these white soldiers didn't actually end up becoming more open to black people in general. Just the ones they had gotten to know. So, is this a critical blow to the contact hypothesis? Not necessarily. At least I don't think so. The challenge is to get better at understanding when these experiences chip away at prejudice toward the whole group, and when they don't. But from a practical perspective, I, I like how Selma frames the caution we need to exercise. At the very least, we can highlight that this generalization is, is not something you can assume is going to be true. And the higher the baseline prejudice, the more ingrained the, the conflict, the less likely it is that you're going to get this generalization because it's just riskier to trust strangers for people who have been through some kind of personal trauma. That importance of vetting people becomes even more important. Okay, just a couple quick clips remaining in my uh, review of 2021. This next one is uh, an interview I did with Edith Schneider, um, who's a, a psychologist who studies the phenomenon of ambivalence. And this is really like, this is cuts to the heart of the origin story of opinion science. It's just like, how do we understand opinions as they exist in the minds of people? And how do we characterize those opinions? So we're going to talk to, to Edis about her work on ambivalence and what ambivalence is and why it makes it tricky to measure people's attitudes in a straightforward way. I think to be ambivalent means to have both positive and negative thoughts and feelings about the same thing. So I think examples that make that clear is, for instance, different food items. So a cake is very attractive and it's tasty, but at the same time, you know that it might, you know, interfere with your diet or your health goals. And so you have positive and negative feelings about that. But also events in your life that are important and profound milestones can evoke positive and negative emotions at the same time. So, for instance, when people graduate or they leave their dorm, uh, they might feel happy and excited about the future, but also sad because there are at the end of an era, closing off a period or a chapter uh, in their life. And I think broadly, that is when people experience ambivalence and it has to do with the presence and, and strength of positive and negative affect, thoughts, feelings associated with one topic, one opinion, one event or person even. So when it comes to like knowing when someone is ambivalent, one of the challenges I know is that in a survey, the classic way of asking for people's opinions is on a scale from I don't like it to I like it. And the problem is that if people circle some number in the middle, it could mean that they don't care. It could mean that they don't haven't thought about it, but it could mean that they're so ambivalent that they can't pick a side that they end up in the middle. So what do we do to, to get a little technical? How could we know that someone is ambivalent? Like what kind of method would we use to, to get that from someone? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think it's so interesting that when it comes to ambivalence, there's such a disconnect between how psychologists have examined attitudes and opinions and the way people experience them. So for instance, in psychology, the typical way is to ask people how they feel or what they think on a scale going from something negative to something positive. So it can go from not at all pleasurable to super pleasurable. It can go from favorable to or unfavorable to favorable. And that assumes that the better something gets, the less bad something gets. But that's not how things work in the human experience. Because we know from decades of research on ambivalence that does acknowledge that, that people can experience positivity and negativity at the same time. And then when people are faced with such a scale in psychological research, but also in marketing surveys and everywhere where we're trying to assess what people think, that they don't know what to do. So they're now in a situation where they want to be honest uh, and they want to express their opinion. And that opinion is one that is conflicted, right? So they feel positive and negative. So they will circle the middle of that scale but at the same time, if people do not care, they will also circle the middle of that scale. So that's where ambiguity exists between people not caring, looking the same as people caring a lot, 
but caring about the positive and the negative sides. And I think in my research, there's been a lot of emphasis on that and my dissatisfaction with these, I think, limited ways of assessing the complexity of how people think and what they feel. And so what we tend to do is use older methods that have been developed around you know, 1970, and a lot has been done in the 90s too, um, where you just ask how positive people feel and how negative people feel. And you tell them, you know, these are separate things. Tell us how positive and how negative uh, you feel. And then we can sort of see whether they have both positive and negative feelings at the same time. So there's two separate questions for positivity and negativity. Or I think what is a great method in psychological research is to just ask people. I mean, there is criticism on asking people to self-report on things. At the same time, they're kind of the expert on their own inner life. So I do think it's a really good method. And you just ask them, to what degree do you feel mixed thoughts and feelings? Or do you feel conflicted about this topic? So I think that is interesting and it works quite well. And in my own work, I've tried to also look at more indirect ways to kind of assess the degree to which people feel positive and negative at the same time. And what we've tried to do is to kind of use the fact that decision-making is a continuous process and that kind of during the decision, you can see what side of the topic is most dominant in people's minds, so most active. Um, because when something is active, you know, for instance, when I think this is really positive, the motor systems associated with a response that could express that positivity are activated. So what we do is that we ask people to indicate whether they think something is positive or negative. And as they move their mouse to the correct response, we record where their mouse is going. And from this data, we can see that when people are responding to ambivalent topics, so for instance, different types of food, but also societal topics like immigration or gun control, we can see that the path that their mouse takes is a little bit curved. And that means that they are moving to one response, but they're also pulled to another response. Kind of think about it in a way that if you would be super clear about where you want to go, your path is straight and direct. But if you feel like you're torn between two things, both positive and negative, your path will be a little bit more curved. And that's a method that we've um, also used in, in my lab to kind of assess ambivalence in a way that people don't know that you're asking about it. All right. End of the road. <laughs> end of the best of. Uh, and I wanted to conclude this uh, romp through 2021 with uh, an interview that I did with a negotiation expert. So this uh, this may be the only um, clip that I'm playing in this episode of someone who's not a social scientist, um, but who is a practitioner uh, and someone who's very good at what they do. So I talked to Kwame Christian, who's an expert in negotiation. He teaches at the Ohio State University Law School. Um, he produces a podcast called Negotiate Anything. He runs a consulting agency um, trying to help people negotiate better. Um, and he's written several books on the topic as well, or he's at least written one and another is is coming out uh, sometime soon. And I actually got a lot of great feedback on this. This is I never know when I'm talking to people who aren't social scientists because I, I don't as easily speak the language <laughs> of, of the actual on the ground communication stuff. Um, but, but the response to this was really fantastic, and I'm super excited to share a clip of it with you, where Kwame's really talking about what negotiation is and how it's probably bigger than what you're imagining when you think about negotiation. Negotiation is really part of the conversations we have every day with people across all walks of life. Um, and then he'll also give uh, an overview of this framework that he developed for how to effectively negotiate. So we'll listen to this clip, but if you want to know more, obviously check out that whole episode. My definition of negotiation is anytime you're in a conversation and somebody in the conversation wants something. And so my, my definition is intentionally broad because I think um, negotiation awareness is one of the biggest barriers people have to negotiation. They just don't realize when they're doing it. Now, I realize that I'm dealing with a, a highly sophisticated audience, so I'll take my standard definition and take it a little bit further, because a lot of people who listen to that, they might say, well, that really just sounds like persuasion, which is kind of steering a conversation, trying to get people to think differently, and I agree with that. The, the more traditional 
description of negotiation, if we're trying to draw a distinction between persuasion in general and the, the school of negotiation, with negotiation, it's a conversation with the stated intention of producing a specific outcome. And so if we're taking it that next step and creating that distinction, that's what the distinction is. But I find it a lot more useful to think about it more broadly because now we're able to interact with people with more intentionality. And so now with my wife and my five-year-old, I think, I think about these as little negotiations. And so now I'm a lot more strategic about that interaction um, at work. I, we often think about it in terms of external negotiations. I'm negotiating this contract with a vendor or something like that. But the most important negotiations and the most frequent negotiations are going to be within your own team, talking about roles and responsibilities, setting expectations, setting boundaries. Those are all negotiations. And if we start to think about them in terms of negotiations, it makes it more likely for us to then think more strategically about the way we're interacting with each other. And that's why... I call the podcast Negotiate Anything <laughs> to make sure that we're thinking about it in that type of way. I was watching your TED Talk on compassionate curiosity, and I wonder if that's a, a little bit of a way to break through. So could you maybe explain a little bit about what that is and, and where you, how you came to that notion and how it might be used in a situation like this? Yes, absolutely. So the compassionate curiosity framework, it's a three-part framework that is designed for simplicity. So it's number one, acknowledge and validate emotions. Number two, get curious with compassion. And number three, joint problem solving. And Andy, it, through all of my negotiations, whether it's with opposing counsel in a really, really tough situation or with my five-year-old or with my wife, this is the foundation. It's that simple and that widely applicable. And so if you see the specter of any type of difficult emotion, what you do is you acknowledge it and validate it by labeling the emotion. So for your uh, psychology conscious audience, this is affect labeling from, from clinical psychology. So we might be having a, a conversation and um, it's about a heated political issue. And so I might stop and say, um, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sounds like to you, you want to make sure that people are compensated fairly for the work that they do. Is that correct? And then you say, yes, that's all I'm saying, right? And so that calms the person down and makes it less likely for them to have that visceral emotional response. So once that emotional response is handled, then you transition into the next point, which is getting curious with compassion. And so this is asking open-ended questions with a compassionate tone. So we want to give them the opportunity to share and give and share why they believe what they believe and what is creating that foundation for their belief, right? And so in that situation, the we want to use questions that start with who, what, where, when, and how, avoiding questions that start with why, because questions that start with why can trigger defensiveness because it sounds like an accusation or a judgment. And so if we're thinking about this from a conversation about a sensitive issue like race, religion, politics, those type of things, you have to remember this really simple truth. You can't convince anybody of anything they have to convince themselves. And so the right approach to addressing that foundation, if your goal is to get them to think differently, is using epistemology, which is the science or the philosophy behind how you know what you know. And so you have to use the compassionate curiosity framework in order to get an idea of what they know and why they believe that thing. And then you ask strate strategic and targeted questions that help them to recognize the potential gaps in their understanding. And then with joint problem solving, this is if there was a specific resolution you're trying to get the person to do. So like in a negotiation, this is where we're trying to resolve the issue at hand. This is when we're talking about the deal or whatever. Or in a, an interpersonal interaction, this is where we talk about what the relationship looks like going forward. But in these political conversations, it's not always clear what the, the, the end goal is, because maybe the end goal is just getting them to think clearly. Maybe we don't hit joint problem solving because there's really no specific resolution. Or if your goal is to flip votes, first of all, good luck. Um, <laughs> second of all, um, then you try to figure out where they stand and whether they're willing to adjust their position.
And that's it. Those are the only moments from 2021 that you should pay any attention to. No, of course not. But what I hope is that this, uh, if you've listened to the show before, that this was a fun uh, way to revisit moments from 2021. If you're new to the show, that this was a way to sort of see the real variety of perspectives that I hope to bring, even under what might feel like a pretty narrow topic of opinions, where they come from and how they change, right? So we've seen the psychology of morality interplaying with the psychology of intergroup relations and prejudice and the ambivalent attitudes that we carry about all sorts of topics. Uh, And finally, the ways that we negotiate uh, change with other people. But this just scratches the surface of what a cool year 2021 was for this podcast. I got to talk to a survey methodologist at Pew Research Center about how they can actually know what a nation's opinions are of a particular issue. I reported a story about an artificial intelligence system that can persuade people to change their opinions and and discuss, you know, what does this mean about <laughs> whether persuasion is a fundamentally human capacity or something that machines can do. I talked with authors, psychologists, communication scholars, sociologists, and neuroscientists, all about the curious nature of our opinions, how we go about influencing people, and what happens when opinions collide. And there's a bunch of cool stuff on the docket for 2022 already, actually. Um, I've recorded some really wonderful interviews with people, including friends, new friends, uh, people that I've, I just really respect the work that they do. So some of that's already come out. More of it is to come. Producing a story uh, about uh, a popular model of persuasion. I don't know when that'll come out, but it will. Um, and also doing some fun stuff in collaboration with other behavioral science podcasts. Um, so a shout out to the podcast Behavioral Grooves. Really wonderful podcast if you want to check it out. Tim Houlihan and Kurt Nelson host that show. And and they have, I mean, <laughs> there's so much content that they've produced over the years um, that it's really worth your attention. But together with them, we're producing a special series on the growth and impact of behavioral economics, um, which has been a, a really fun opportunity to talk with you know, Nobel laureates and people who span a bunch of different disciplines, but all of whom are studying how economic decisions decisions have an element of psychology to them and how that was a radical idea for <laughs> for a long time and how even now economics textbooks still seem disinterested in the fact that human beings think in a peculiar sort of way. So that's coming down the pike as well. A bunch of other cool stuff, uh, a series on social science communication, um, featuring interviews with some really cool people. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm excited uh, about that and other stuff. Um, and so, yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> Keep an eye out for new episodes. Subscribe to Opinion Science. Anywhere you get podcasts, you're going to find Opinion Science. Uh, you can go to opinionsciencepodcast.com, where I've made a real concerted effort to have transcripts available, like good quality transcripts available. Here's where I, I call out my transcript guy, Tim Hopp, uh, who's been doing a really wonderful job uh, transcribing episodes of this show to increase the accessibility of it um, across lots of different dimensions. Uh, and also, as a teaching tool that that I hear from people all over the world who listen to the show or who use the show in their teaching, uh, in their classrooms. Um, And gosh, (laughs) what a cool thing to to be a part of. But I'm going to stop rambling because if there's anything worse than a podcast that goes too long, it's a podcast that goes too long because someone is rambling. So I'm going to put a pin in it there and wish you the best in 2022. I hope you stick around uh, for more opinion science. And stay tuned, because in just a week, there's going to be a new episode in your podcast feed. Thank you again for everything. Have a wonderful year, and uh, I will hopefully run into you sometime soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.